if you're somebody that you have a full-time job and you work for a company and you've got some income, find whatever that niche is. Maybe you drive for dollars, find a bunch of ugly houses, write the addresses down, research them. And then maybe you just start mailing like 500 or a thousand postcards every month, but you got to be consistent. I think you should probably hit the same list. You're going to probably get a couple of people that are going to call you. that are going to be angry and, Hey, why do you keep mailing me these? And then you're also going to get a couple of people that say, Hey, you keep mailing me these. How did you know? We've been thinking about it. We keep getting your postcard. We're Tell me about this. How does this all work? So consistent, repetitive, consistent. That's how you get it done. And that's how you get better. That's how you learn the business. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Ty Leon Guerrero. Ty is a broker and wholesaler in the Bay Area who's been in the business for over two decades. In this episode, Ty will share his tips on how consistency is the key to becoming a successful investor, even in a shifting market. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. Enjoy. All right, Ty, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Yeah, so my name is Ty Leon Guerrero. I am a real estate investor. I am a wholesaler. I'm also a real estate broker and I'm based in the East Bay of the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. As a kid, I could always see real estate was something, you know, something that was a big opportunity. You know, I'd be like in Little League, a friend of mine, his dad, you could see very successful, new cars, beautiful home, doing very, very well. Spend the afternoon with them and, okay, what does your dad do? Oh, he's in real estate. He invests. He has partnerships, things like that. Um, as a kid in high school, I can notice when you're in high school, you're thinking about cars. I had a neighbor, not not a direct neighbor, but a guy that kind of lived up the hill. I lived down on the bottom of the hill. I'd see this guy and he always had a different car, Mercedes, Rolls Royce, Cadillac, convertibles, hardtops, you know, six, seven cars. I'm like, who is this guy? And they're like, oh, that's Malcolm Tip. He's the, you know, most well-known real estate broker, real estate investor. He owns 50, 100 units. Basically, somebody who was very, very successful. So for me, I could see early on that real estate was a pathway to success and wealth and freedom. So for me, I was... Got out of high school, thought, you know, I'm going to get a business degree. I'll go to college. I went to junior college and I was at junior college, but honestly, I wasn't very interested in college. I was doing the general education stuff, getting that out of the way. I was going to transfer somewhere around here in the Bay Area, Sac State or somewhere local and get a business degree. And really, honestly, not really clear on what to do with that. In the meanwhile, I've always been a hungry to learn. And so for me, I started reading books. Uh, about, you know, I was reading Tony Robbins books early on at, you know, probably 18, 19 years old, read a book by a guy named Robert Allen, and it was called Nothing Down for the 90s. And Robert Allen is not the original real estate guru, but he's definitely one of the early pioneers. And that book, it was just talking about how you could go out and creative financing and find deals. And so I was very intrigued by that. As a young person, I was always a pretty good saver. 
And so even in high school, little odd jobs and, you know, having jobs and stuff, such, I always saved money pretty well. And then even in, when I was going to junior college, I was a pretty good saver then. So I was able to save up enough to have a down payment to buy my first property uh, when I was 21. And given, given an idea, I was living at home with my grandmother and I actually bought a rental property and bought my first rental in 1993. And then I started looking around. I had some friends. I had some good influence, hanging around some really good people, friends from church. And they were like, you know, you'd be really good at real estate and you should meet this, that Malcolm Tip gentleman. They knew him, had a good relationship. They said like, you should go and work for him and like really get after this real estate. You'd be really good at it. And so it was about 21, 22. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. That's my path. And you know, I haven't looked back since. So, so when you started working for Malcolm, uh, what do you have you do? So early on, when I was in junior college, I had a landscape business. I had a full-time job. I was a groundskeeper. And then I had like a side business that I was a landscaper. I actually went through, got my license, real estate license, did all that on my own. And then so when I met Malcolm Tip, part of it was as I was going to come to work for him as an agent, but then also I was doing side jobs for him. So I was doing like with my crew, I had a crew of guys working for me. And so we were doing some landscape stuff and cleanup stuff on his apartment buildings and things, little odd jobs and things like that. But with Malcolm Tip, the cool thing about being with this guy is this guy knew how to, he knew how to connect with people. And I had some of that skill set. Some of that is a natural ingrained by nature. I'm a driver. I'm also very expressive, but I really learned how, like how to really connect with people. This guy's a pro, this guy's a pro at it. And this guy loved the people. I mean, this guy could have ran for mayor and like a thousand times over. This guy was like the mayor, that the mayor type guy out there shaking hands, talking to people. And the other thing I learned from Malcolm was just hard work. Like, so when I initially started, I was still working the groundskeeper job. And then I would like shower and come into the office at like three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon and then work till seven, eight, nine o'clock at night, making cold calls on the computer and trying to figure out, learn the business. And he'd be, he and I would be the last two guys in there again, eight, nine o'clock at night. And he'd be in there working and hearing him on making calls and talking to people and putting deals together. He was really unique too, that you don't see this anymore. It's very rare, but he's a guy where he was a real estate broker real estate investor himself. He was a hard money lender. He had a property management company and the guy was dynamic. And then even next door, he had a good friend, a guy that was also a strong mentor, a guy that was one of his good friends and became one of my good friends who was an attorney, real estate broker, also a property manager, money lender, deal maker. So these guys are unique in that you don't see guys like that, it's not common, right? So very unique to be around somebody like that, that was deal maker, super creative, knew how to put deals together, had over 100 rental properties, and very fortunate to be able to mentor under somebody like that, that was that successful and that giving and sharing. So, And how long were you working with Malcolm for? Feels like a couple of years, two or three years, something like that. So worked with him. And then later I got Honestly, I left too soon. I should have stayed there longer. But because I came in, I was early successful as a real estate agent. I had some friends working at a REMAX office. They said, hey, this owner's going to sell. He needs to get out. We should buy the office and you'll become an owner. And I was like 25, 26 years old and overly confident, but doing well, very successful, but overly confident. And I left too early, honestly. 
And, you know, I should have stayed with Malcolm because I could have learned a lot more from him. And just being around somebody like that, who you spend time with is who you become. So this guy is one of my all-time heroes, of one of my all-time heroes, for sure. Nice. So flash forward now to 2019. I'm sure you're doing things a lot differently now. Uh, tell us, what are you up to now? What's different now? So I still have a realty company. So I have a company called Team One Realty and kind of the the progression and digression in that is that I've always been somebody that's always looking for deals. I've always been working as an investor as well as being a broker. And there've been times where I've been very, very focused on the brokerage and doing the investments by accident, which was a mistake. I should have always intentionally been doing both and doing both at a, at a high level. There were times when I just literally put my broker hat on and just focused on doing brokerage because maybe out of necessity or out of scarcity or something like that. Felt like, oh, if you could almost look at like being a broker was has always been my day job and then doing the investments has not. So in the last, I would say probably eight, two years, but more so even the last year and a half, it used to be like 80-20. So where 80% of my business was the brokerage, 20% was investment. And me flipping deals, buying deals, wholesaling deals, things like that. And so on purpose, probably like the last two years and especially the last year, I've been really focused on transitioning and reversing it. So now like 2019, I'd say that my business is probably like 70% investment oriented, wholesaling, flips, doing partnerships, joint ventures, things like that, buy and hold properties, things like that. And then 30%, maybe as much as 35, 40%, I think 70, 30 though, 30% being brokerage, actually doing listings and working for other people versus a principal in a transaction. Do you feel like the market slowdown is making you double think your strategy of switching back and forth? This is a good question. That's a great question in terms of the market shift. So if you can imagine from 94, from 1994 to like 1998, I was doing both 80-20, a really successful real estate agent, taking a lot of listings, selling, shirt and tie every day, suits, going on appointment, listing appointments, very, very professional. In my 20s, trying to behave like I'm 30 or 40, trying to look and act the part like somebody who's been in the business a long time and very successful. And in about 1998-99, I said, you know what? I got in this business. Now, you got to remember, I got in. I owned a rental before I was a licensed agent. I got in the business to buy property and to do investments and flip and buy and hold. And that was always the core strategy. Now, in 98, I kind of had this epiphany. I kind of woke up and go, man, I'm spending a lot of time doing this. And really, all my wealth or all my kind of bigger upside and gain and my freedom, I enjoy doing my own deals more than I do working for other people. I, I love working for other people, but it's like, I enjoy this a little more. This is really my purpose, my intention. So in 98, I really shifted gears. And from like 98, 99, 2000, 2001, if you remember in 2001, we had September 11th. That happened. Everybody got scared. I was not scared. I had my foot on the gas from like October, November, December going into 2002, from 2011 after September 11th. Interest rates were coming down. Everybody was like uncertain what the market was going to do. I kept buying and buying and buying. I did so incredibly well from 
all those years from 98 to 2001 and then even 2001 going forward into 2004, 2005. I was a multi, multi-millionaire. I had a lot of rental properties. I had a lot of projects. Everything was going so well. And the thing was, is that you can imagine I'm 30 years, 30, 30 years old. I'm a multi, multi-millionaire. I've got all these properties. Everything's going right. My mindset is I can't do wrong. Now I got the Midas touch. And so a lot of my friends were getting into land development and doing commercial deals and large apartment deals and things like that. And this is an important lesson. This is why, and I'm sharing with the group, you want to stay in your lane, stay in your lane. And then, so what I did is I said, oh, well, I've been successful at houses. I'll just get into land development. I'll just get into big apartment deals. And granted, you can do that. You can get into land development. You can get into apartment deals. But the problem is, is I just shifted gears and just like dove into it without really, really having the experience. Right. And you can imagine this was 2006, 2007, and everybody knows what happened in 2008. Right. The whole market completely blew up. Companies like Lehman Brothers, 100 year old companies that had been around for 100 year old companies were going out of business. So it's interesting that whole timing of it. And that what I say is stay in your lane. But also, what I really, if I look back at it, what the adjustment I should have made is finding partners and people that have the experience, guys that have done those deals, guys that could navigate and or even more as important as the experience, people who could also mitigate the risk, share the risk versus me having to be, oh, this is my project. It's all me. And and that we're maybe partnering with two or three other guys, three or four other guys. If we lose money, it's a much smaller loss. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. And you get some mentorship while, I guess, partnering with these people. Yeah. What better way than like if somebody knows how to do these entitlement deals. Now, by the way, I've had very successful entitlement deals where I've gotten properties, projects entitled, things like that. By the time I got them entitled, I couldn't, they weren't worth anything because the market completely crashed. And also what I would say is what I learned from 2006 to 2009, you can't buy that at business school. You can't buy that anywhere. It's not in a seminar. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars of losses, but also the experience of being able to survive through that 2009, I had to shift gears and I had to go all in back into my brokerage. There was nothing going on besides bank foreclosure. So I went out and got a bunch of REO accounts, bank foreclosures, started selling those. I worked for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Through that, I met a bunch of guys running hedge funds where they were buying property, some buying them to rent, buy and hold, others to flip. So I got to see those business models, how they scale. I got to learn a lot from those guys companies like Waypoint, companies like Invitation Homes, companies like Newport Marietta, a few others. But these were big, big hedge funds that hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars going out there. So I got to learn and scale that. But the challenge is, is in 2009, I went all in to back to brokerage. And that was the problem is I got a little bit like, and I'm like, honestly, I would say that probably the last two or three years, I kind of burned out a little bit on brokerage where it's repetitive, right? Every day you're unemployed. You got to find another deal, find another deal. And not only that, but you're working for somebody else. So like you're not making decisions. You got to go to somebody else, wait for them to make decisions. Hopefully they have enough common sense to understand repairs, things like that, things that have to be done to cure the property. I'm talking more in a standard transaction if you're working for a, by the way, I love homeowners, but Mr. and Mrs. Homeowner who are selling their house because they're relocating to another area. There's a lot of handholding. I don't mind it. I like it for the right kind of person, but there's also people that are very difficult. So it's like 
for me, that's part of transitioning. And it's just really getting back to my purpose. I love working with investors. I love working with, I love working with other guys that flip. That's why I love wholesaling. I also love the speed and the repetition. Probably, I mean, I've got hundreds of buyers on my buyers list, but there's probably 12 to 18 of them that I really, really like. These are guys that I would go out with for drinks. These are guys that I like to spend time with. These are guys when they tell me they're going to do something, they actually do it. That's a big deal for me. So I got a little bit off on a tangent, but I wanted to kind of share the timeline of here's here's how we ended up here in 2019. Yeah. And on subject of wholesaling, what are you doing to get good at wholesaling? What do you do to get good at wholesaling? That's a good question. I think two things. So I'll share what I do and then for the public, for the audience of what I make suggestions because there's different people at different levels. So to get good at wholesaling, I think you just, for me, it's all about the sales skills themselves. So in the morning when I wake up, I have a routine and part of my routine is I'm on YouTube and I'm constantly learning and listening to podcasts like yours, other podcasts, other YouTube podcasts. I'm on there diving every day. I'm learning. And I'm always like, I see somebody new, like with yourself, right? I say, oh, Sean, who's this? What's this about? And I go in and I'm like, oh, let me see what I can learn from these guys. Let's be honest. I've been doing this 25 years. So 90% of it is pretty repetitive, right? The guys are going to say kind of the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, but I'm looking for those two or three nuggets. I'm looking for those two or three ideas that somebody else is doing different. Give an example, and I'll just not giving shout out per se, but I want to share with you. So I'd heard about Rafael Vargas. He's a guy on the East Coast. He's a wholesaler, big wholesaler in the East Coast. He, I think he's from DC, lives down in Tampa now. He's wholesaling. He's got five or six virtual markets. He does a class. I heard about him. I thought, man, who is this dude? I went to his class, spent the money, went to go learn from him, spend the money, go learn from him. I heard about uh, Sal and Carlos. I think every, a lot of people know about Sal and Carlos. They're very well known out there, all in. Great guys. Love those guys. Love Raphael too. Great guys. I went, spent the money, went to go went to go and see what they're doing. Also like another guys, uh, Nick and Octavius. I don't know the name of their program. I forget the name of their millennial wholesalers that was after, but I met them at like a Tony Robbins event and just talking with them. And they're like, Hey, I'm like, I'm sharing ideas about development and my experience. And they're like, Hey, come see our operation. And we share. So I would say to get better at it, you've got to constantly be learning. Even if you can't afford to spend the money, be watching podcasts, be a thirsty, hungry learner. That's how I got here is because I was so hungry. And you got to remember back in the old days, I had like probably three or four crates and I'm talking the giant Home Depot, like what you'd basically put your Christmas decorations in crates that I had had with cassettes in them, like just cassettes over the years. I probably spent $300,000 or more over 25 years just on cassette programs. Back in the old days, guys, you had to buy these things called cassettes in the 90s when I was starting off and you'd buy like be six cassettes and like a little booklet and there might be a workbook in on one side and then the cassettes one two three four five six and it'd be like three hundred dollars and it'd be like 10 hours worth of material or something like that and I would buy it and I'm driving in my car going on appointments and in the gym with my Walkman on with my my headphones on listening to this stuff and then it was CDs and all of that but I, now everything's on YouTube like you don't have to spend any money. So even if you don't have any money, get on YouTube. And then there's guys like me, like, right? Like there's guys like you, Sean. So like, if you know other people or you have exposure, 
like people watching this. I don't, I get maybe three or four or five people per quarter, maybe one or two a month that reach out to me. Hey, I saw you on this podcast or I ran into you. You were speaking at this meeting. By the way, I'm not in the speaking business. I'm not in the coaching business. I'm in the doing my own thing and I'm doing the business. I'm not here trying to sell people coaching or mentorship or things like that. But people hit me up and I'm happy to share with them. I'm like, hey, yeah, no problem. Let's get on. Let's do a 10 minute call, whatever. Let me forward you a couple links that I think that'll help you. But I would say it's all about learning. And then get together with other people that when you come across somebody like me or Sean or other people, get together with them, reach out to them. You know, sometimes people will say that they get stuck in the learning phase and they just read a lot of articles, listen to a lot of podcasts, but don't actually take any action. Uh, what kind of advice would you give to someone who needs to get started? Like what would you, what should they be doing to take action? Take action. So two things, take action. So even if you don't have any money, so like, let's say like in terms of action taking, there's more time, more time, no money or less money, more time then that person should be go out and door knock, go out and just drive, driving for dollars. But instead of like writing down the addresses and you see an ugly house, pull over, knock on that door and Hey, yeah, I was in the neighborhood. Just stop by. I wanted to see if you ever considered selling or if you take a cash offer. Oh no, we're the tenants. Oh, you're kidding. Okay, great. How long have you lived here? Oh, we've been here 10 years. Oh, great. Just curious. Um, now does the owner, does he live in town or now you may have to research and look that one up. Maybe I knock on the doors across the street or next door to the left, next door to the right. Hey, do you know how I can get a hold of the owner? I was curious about the house next door. I'm just looking to buy a property in the area. Do you, how would I get a hold of this guy? Then you could go look them up. You could skip trace them, things like that. But again, I would say get out there and do it. It's all about doing and how you're going to learn is doing it. How I, every day, man, a repetitive, repetitive, repetitive day in and day out. Like for me, I'm talking to, I'm on the phones. I do, this is prospect. This is my headset. I probably talk to, I don't want to exaggerate, but I would say on an average week, I talk to like 30 to 50, 60 people a day. And that's, three days a week. Give you an idea today. I was out looking at, I went on an appointment. I was looking at another property. I haven't prospected yet today, but when you and I hang up, this all settles, the dust settles today. It's a, it's in the afternoon. I'll probably call from like three thirty, four o'clock to about six, six I'll take a couple of breaks there, here and there. I'm in my home office. I have a regular office too, but I'm in my home office. So take a couple of breaks. Sean, you saw my son, right? I, I'll take breaks. I'll go out. My son, I'll hang out with him and pop out and hang out with him for 10 minutes and then get back on the phones. So, but you got to do it. You got to get in it. You got to get in it. Cold calling, whatever. Or if you have money, you mentioned engineers and you mentioned you got a lot of professionals and people in the Bay Area. If you're somebody that you have a full-time job and you work for a company and you've got some income, my thought is, okay, find whatever that niche is. Maybe you drive for dollars find a bunch of ugly houses, write the addresses down, research them. You guys know all this part. And then maybe you just start mailing like two or 300 or 500 or a thousand or 2000 or 5,000 postcards every month, but you got to be consistent. You got to be consistent. And my thought is rather than hit a list, hit a thousand this month and then find a new list next month and do a thousand and then find a new list. I think you should probably hit the same list. There's some repetitiveness. That's a little just a little tweak because you're really going to like, you're going to probably get a couple people that are going to call you. that are going to be angry. And Hey, why do you keep mailing me these? And then you're also going to get a couple people that say, Hey, you keep mailing me these. How did you know? We've been thinking about it. We keep getting your postcard. We're well, tell me about this. How does this all work? So 
consistent, consistent, repetitive, consistent, repetitive, consistent. That's how you get it done. And that's how you get better. That's how you learn the business. And what would you say is your biggest uh, lead generator at the moment? It's all phone for me. I mean, so we're, I have a small team. I typically run about five to eight people on my team. So I've got support people and this, this is to support. And this has always been, this is from like day one, even when I was brand, brand new, I had a part-time assistant and, you know, fast, probably my second year into the business. I had a small team, had somebody to help me in different components. So but there's five to eight of us. And so I typically run three to four people dialing where they're salespeople. So we're dialing, we're prospecting, we're making outbound calls. And that's our number one thing. We're calling everything under the sun. I mean, we're calling zip codes, we're calling absentee owners, we're calling lien notices, vacant properties, our driving for dollar list, things like that. I used to do a lot of mail and I may go back to doing some mail, but um, back in the 90s, in the early 90s, I was doing mail and nobody was mailing. And I was mailing We Buy Houses and it was like, there was only a few of us. It's not like today where there's, you know, I don't know how many, 5,000 wholesalers in the Bay Area. I, I don't really know. I made that number up. But my point being is that back in the day, like we would do, I could do a thousand mailers and get like, I don't want to exaggerate, but probably get like 10 to 15 really good phone calls, like good solid leads of which... Out of those 10 to 15, I could probably buy two or three of the houses now and then two or three of them over the next six months or the next 90 days. And then the other remainders, either maybe I list them, they turn into leads, or they're just a longer time nurture where maybe it's like in nine months, one of them buy one of them again, something like that. It turns into a deal, things like that. Now today, I was mailing last year pretty heavy. Not as heavy as there's some guys that are psycho out there or big, big mailers. I'm not, I probably was doing, I don't want to exaggerate, but like probably like five to 8,000 letters a month last year. And then I was doing behind it, maybe three to 5,000 postcards, kind of rotating letters, postcards, letters, postcards in that realm. And we get a deal now and then, but it was like the KPI on it was like, it was less than like a 10th of a percent of conversion. So it's like the phones, it's not that the phones are that much better, but the cost is much lower, if that makes sense. Yeah. And is your team all kind of like here in California or are they kind of like virtual assistants? No. So I've got two other guys that are core that are right here. So I've got a guy that two guys in the Bay area. One guy has, he's a part-time guy. He's great. They're both great. One guy's like part-time. So he comes in, he has like a morning job, afternoon job. He comes in like later afternoon and then he calls like probably two to three nights, three, two to three, sometimes four afternoon evenings per week. And then I've got another guy that he's Monday through Friday and he calls in the morning and that. And then I, I have had and I have people overseas. So if you go to like outbounders.com, I think it's outbounders.com. Out, if you just Google outbounders, you can find really good people in the Philippines and you can find really good people in the Central America. And, you know, typically there you're going to pay on average five bucks an hour, but sometimes I'd say five to six, seven bucks an hour is kind of the, the pay scale. And we've had a lot of success with that too. I kind of scale up and down. And then also with just pure callers, the, the other two guys I mentioned, those are guys that are in the real estate business. They also have real estate licenses. 
they found me organically. So these were guys that found me on Instagram or they saw a podcast or something like that. And so they found me organically and they're like, hey, I want to really come work with you and be a part of your team. You don't have to have a real estate license, by the way, but these guys just happen to have real estate licenses. The just pure pay dialers, those guys, what happens is they burn out. They're usually really good for the first month, two months, three months. And then what happens is, is they just kind of, it's a, you know, let's be honest. It's tough. It's a tougher thing. You have to have really thick skin and think too, because they're remote. They think as it progresses and they do really well in the beginning, it's kind of like they earn their credibility with you. So their efforts kind of diminish and then they get sick days or something happened with my kid or something happened with my internet or the power. We lost power today, things like that. So you just get some of that inconsistency and that's how we lose people. Is it, they just kind of get really inconsistent and honestly, they just burn out, I I think. So you got to, if you are going to do it that way, you got to always be hiring. You always got to be, you got to have somebody that's always interviewing, recruiting, hiring, and you got to always have, if you're going to run it like that, you always have to have one, two, three, four people waiting on the sidelines and bringing them in as the other people burn out. So, And for your team here in California, are they also also salary-based or you give them kind of a profit share? Their commission. I did. It's interesting. I went to, I'm still working on this and it's still a work in progress. I'm by nature, I'm a driver and I'm an expressive. So my level of patience in that is lower. So I don't have, I'm working on it. You know, it's a, it's a work in progress, but ultimately I am who I am. And so I'm very impatient. So like I ramped up, I hired a bunch of sales guys in my office, salary based and like came back from Raphael's event and then Sal and Carlos's event. I'm like, I'm going to just hire. And then, you know, base pay salary plus bonuses and all that. And these guys were pretty good, but it wasn't enough to move the needle. So for me personally, I like to have the purest salesperson, excuse me, is a commissioned salesperson. It's like you kill, you eat. And that's, the way I've lived my whole entire life. It's like, if you get out there and you bring in deals, you're going to do well. And if you don't, you're not going to have the safety net of a salary. So I really like, for me, I like the commission-based guys. I just think they just work a little harder. And I think those are going to be the better salespeople long game, but you can do both. I mean, they both work. They both work. It just depends on how, I think it has to do with personality types. If you're more patient and you're more managerial, I think you could, I think you could run the salary-based team. But I just, I like the outbounders. I like the outbounder idea of kind of contract hire. I think that's a a good fit. We had really good success with those guys. Those guys generated a lot of leads, but they also generate a lot of junk too, because they want to do well. A lot of suspects, oh yeah, no, they want to sell. They'll send you the notes and you call and they're like, you listen to the audio and they're like, well, they were being nice. They're thinking about it someday, but they don't really have a need. You know what I mean? So you got to really monitor those guys as well. Well, you said you do about 30 or 60 phone calls per day. Contacts. Those are contacts. I'm doing probably 300 dials a day to talk to, let's just say 300 dials to talk to 25 to 35 people. On average, you're going to hit about 10%. So a thousand dials, let's just say a hundred calls will get you about 10 contacts. Could get you eight, could get you six. But if you're doing it day in and day out, it's going to average out. It should average out to about 10, 10%. So for me, I make my days based on what I got going on. 
But for me, like for me, a healthy day, I should be at a minimum of 30 conversations. I'm pitching, I'm following up. And most of my stuff I'm doing, I'm not doing myself cold. Most of my stuff is a little warmer. It's stuff that's been given to me from the other guys and or it's stuff that's in our nurture where I'm following up and talking to people that we've already had contacting. But I do a little bit of cold myself too. I'm not above it. I definitely get out there and generate new stuff. So, And how about your teammates? How, uh, how much are you expecting them to cold call per day? They're the same thing. It's, it's two to three hours a day. Two to three hours a day. And the way I look at it is, you know, you should be making 25 to 30 contacts a day if you're for real in this business. And that's kind of like just a minimum standard. I'm very fortunate too. I spent, and I didn't give a shout out and I should, this is a guy that deserves a shout out. Two guys, actually. Mike Ferry is the, he's the godfather of real estate coaching. Like pretty much it was like, Mike Ferry figured out the coaching models even before Tony Robbins. And I love Tony Robbins and tremendous respect Tony Robbins and that. But it was like both of them cracked the code on coaching and building out coaching models of what that looks like. Now, so for Mike Ferry, Mike Ferry is specific to real estate agents and brokers. So it's sales. It's calling for listings. It's calling, talking about, you know, traditional retail real estate. It's not wholesale. There's none of that there. But this is a guy that I literally, and I should have shouted out, from day one, when I became an agent, I followed the Mike Ferry system. And so the Mike Ferry system is all about proactive lead generation, cold calling, door knocking, calling your sphere of influence, connecting with people. It's all skill-based. It's all sales skills, tonality. Tom Ferry is Mike's son. He also has a son named Matthew Ferry. Matthew Ferry does did a lot of skill-based training back in the early, early mid-90s, 2000s. And then now he does more like mastermind stuff that's more like spiritual and and kind of getting out of your own way kind of stuff, like working on yourself. Tom Ferry, you can find, and he's also a guy, very, very high energy, and their dad is Mike Ferry. So it's almost like, I mean, these guys, these guys literally invented real estate agent coaching and everything you see as a coaching model. I mean, they, these were the guys that started it, but on skill base. So the reason why I mentioned that is that in my world, all of my best friends are people that I met at Mike Ferry events and wholesaling or investor conferences and things like that. Like my best, best friends in the world are guys that are in this world. So in our world, the world that I live in, like everybody's a proactive marketer. Everybody's doing phone. Doesn't mean you're just cold calling all day long or you have a sales call center or a big sales team or anything like that. But in our world, active follow-up, active calling is very normal and natural. And I'm fortunate, 25 years of that. How do you find the motivation to keep going? It's funny. You can see my hair, but if you see right there, this is funny. We're talking about motivation. I literally have a speed bump permanently in my head because I figured out, and it was funny, I was calculating this. I've probably, I've done 25 years, I haven't calculated the hours, but I've done over a million contacts of talking to people like, hi, you know, my name's Ty. We're a real estate company. We're real estate investors or, you know, hi, this is Ty with Team One Realty. We're a real estate company. We just listed a home here and just call and see when you might be selling or making a move with yours. Or hi, just calling to see. We just listed a home for sale and we know when neighbor sells, usually a few more sell right away. Just calling to see when do you plan on moving? So it is so deeply ingrained in my DNA that I don't know anything else. So the motivation to call is all I, it's like, it's, it's permeated into me. And I, and I don't, I don't want to sound, I guess that kind of sounds corny, but it's true. 
But the other thing is too, is my family. I've got a young family, a couple of young kids, beautiful boy and girl. I've got a daughter in high school. So I'm like, I'm very like excited about, you know, life and what I'm doing. So I'm excited about life, man. And it's, and it's interesting. And you see, like you see behind me there, you see that guy there, the guy with the, what is that? Who is that? Mr. Leonardo DiCaprio, the Wolf of Wall Street, man. The Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. So I don't idolize the Wolf of Wall Street. I, I like, I think he's, it's an interesting story. Very entertaining. I think Jordan Belfort, you know, I've, I've watched his stuff and very entertaining. And this isn't that I idolize him or money, but this specific pick, what this image is, is fun coupons, right? Fun coupons. He calls it fun coupons in the movie. And so I love to have fun, man. I love to go on vacation with my family. I love to go on vacation and trips with my friends. I'm very, very active with my friends. I'm very active with my family. We do really cool trips and things, but it's like that's my family. And it, to the further side of there, you can't see, but I've got dream boards and stuff and pictures of my kids and family pictures and trips when we went here and went there. That's what it's about, man. At the end of the day, like when I was young, like I've had fancy cars. I've had a Rolls Royce Phantom. I've had every Mercedes, BMW. I've had all the toys. I, I can't fit into a Ferrari or Lamborghini. I'm too big. I've had all that stuff. And I thought when I was young, I thought that was, it ain't about that. Like, I'm just telling you guys now, I'm 48 years old, man. It's about the quality of the experiences of doing fun things with your family, with the people you love, with your friends. That's what life's about, man. And then like clothes, clothes, watches, houses, all of that stuff. I mean, that's cool too, I guess. But it's like, really, for me, it's all about the motivation. Back to the motivation and the question is it's, you know, it's about my family and it's about my friends and having good times. And it's that freedom. It's freedom. I, that, that's what I'm working for is freedom. So, yeah. That's great. You know, I, I like how you mentioned about how the uh, cold calling is in your DNA, something you naturally do. And it's kind of like a push-pull uh, motivation thing, right? Like Tony Robbins says, if you push yourself, push yourself, you're going to get worn out someday. But if it's a pull, like it's something I do normally, like I normally brush my teeth, I normally go to the gym, then yeah, it's not even a big deal. You just do it, right? Exactly. And, and I'll share one other little thing. This is a cool thing that I'm typically kind of an edgy guy. Like I'm run, you can kind of see I'm very passionate and got a fire and for what I'm doing. And the really cool thing, man, and I've, I've been exposed to like meditation for, you know, for years, probably 25 years, whatever. And I've done it off and on and here and there and all that. But, it, but it's really interesting that it's interesting that I've really taken on this year a meditation practice and very consistent. And I'm noticing like this level of flow, this level of flow that where just things happen and you talk about push and pull. And that's the thing is that really, I still have a lot of push. But when you talk about the pool, where, where my future is just pulling me forward. And that's something that I'm really, really working on. And it's some of my own like personal development of taking on this meditation practice and really where, again, for me, I want it to be where it permeates, where it's a part of me, just like you said, brushing my teeth, right? Like brush your teeth every day. Do you meditate every day? You brush your teeth every day. Do you prospect every day? Well, the truth is with prospecting, there's not a day unless I'm on appointments or I'm booked, I'm traveling or whatever, but I, I do the calls. I take weekends off. A lot of Saturdays I call too, though. I do like Saturdays, even just for lead follow-up and extra little touches. But the meditation, man, I'm finding that I'm getting such a good clarity. And I want to throw that out there to your audience that I bet there's a lot of people already doing it. But it's like that to me, like my 
prospecting is a part of who I am. And it just, it's just 25 years. It took me 25 years and more than 2000 hours. I think Max, was it Gladwell? Max Gladwell, the outliers, there's a book. Um, and what he talks about is the competency. If you do something for 2000 hours, then you become really competent and good at it. Well, I've got way more than 2000 hours. So, you know, one part of wholesaling in general is of course, finding the deals, but the next most important part, I think is finding your end buyer. How would someone go about finding real buyers and not just daisy chain wholesalers to offload their deals to? Nobody's asked me ever that question that way. So this is good. You asked the right way. So you're good. I'm asking because I'm having the same problem. You know what I'm saying? Like I have deals, but I don't have anyone to actually sell it to. Super easy. Super easy. This is, and I learned this from Rafael Vargas. This, I got this from the boot camp from him. And it, and it's so simple though. And it like, it's so simple. You just pull where your deal is. You pull all the transactions around there. And you could do it a couple of ways. You could do it like the zip code. You could do a three mile, a five mile radius, a 10 mile radius, 20 mile radius. And you find all the, like all the cash transactions that are non-owner occupied. That's one way. Another way, I'm going to give you the goodies here, man. These are the goodies. So the other way too is to, you can just pull LLCs, just pull the list and then just scan, you know, the LLCs and corporations. Those are the flip. Those are the real flippers, not the wannabe wholesalers. Like, I have a friend of mine and he's successful at it. I'm like, well, where do you get your buyers? And he's like, well, I just, you know, I get on Instagram and Hey, you know, I'm out here at this pro, you know, like whatever. And he shows the property and all that, but I'm sure like he's getting good buyers, but I'm sure he's getting a lot of daisy chain, wannabe tie and kickers, or I don't even know. The other thing I'll say too, is when you get a lot of these daisy chain guys, a lot of guys will try to snake your deals. A lot of guys will not a lot. I shouldn't say a lot. Actually, let me retract that statement. Not a lot, but you just, it's happened. I've had it happen to me. So I think if you just go to the tax records and find people that have already closed deals in that community, that city, whatever, and then just all the LLCs, all the corps, there's there's the real buyers. Yeah, that's awesome. Because if you can have a legitimate list of buyers who are serious, because if you blast out something like that, it's you know very sensitive, right? Someone's attached to the deal maybe, or the sellers are like, why are there so many people looking at my house now? Yeah. 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 And the other thing too is like, so even like when we're doing deals, like I, I have maybe, I have, like I said, I got like eight to 12, 12 to 18 people. I really like to do business. And those are my, and I always send it to them first. I even just give them a first look and then I'll blast it out to the other 180 or whatever. But it's like, these are guys I like to do business with. It's like, if I look at like the deals, it's always the same. And what will happen, it's always the same three to five, five to eight guys. And then every now and then it'll be a curveball where these guys are busy because they just bought two or three or whatever. And they're, so now it's a different two or three guys, but it's just nice to do business with the same people because you know how they do business. You know how they like to do business. You know, they're going to follow through. And then also too, when you come across people that don't fit your model of the world. This is important. Is it like I get new buyers and they're like, they'll say like, they'll ask me to start jumping through hoops. They'll like, as I'll send them the deal. And then they're asking me to jump through hoops. Well, can you send me comps? Can you send me a a plot map of that property? Can you, what else will they say? Send me They'll start asking me for all these requests. Can you send me the zoning from the city website or, or whatever? They'll start asking me all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to underwrite your deal. You know what I mean? You have to underwrite your own deal. So like, I don't mind sending comps, by the way. That's an easy part. I do that. But in the end of the day, even that, honestly, 
if you're doing the comps for the buyer, it's probably the wrong buyer. The good buyers, they don't need you to run comps. You know what I mean? Like the good buyers, they know the comps. They have access. They're going to pull it up. They're going to drive the neighborhood. They're going to know what's going on. But I will help people. Don't get me wrong. But it's just when it's kind of becomes repetitive, it's like I'm back in the brokerage business, right? Where I'm holding hands and I've got to like spoon feed the deal to them. And I don't mind that for the right person. If they have a, they're easy to work with and they're kind and they're gracious and all the stuff and we work well together, that's cool. But in general, wholesale business should not be that. Wholesale business should be pretty fast, very professional. And really you want to be dealing with a professional buyer, somebody who really knows the business and you don't have to explain things to them and how things work. They're going to look at it. You send them an address, some photos, they come and look at it and it's yes or no. They know, they know if it's a deal or not that fits their world. Do they usually, or do you usually send it out one at a time or do you just send out to one list and whoever gets back to you first gets the deal? Long list first. I send it to, like I said, that eight to 12, 12 to 15. It's also geographic. So some guys, like you're in the South Bay, right? Yep. Okay. So some guys, like some guys in the South Bay only do the South Bay. Some guys in the peninsula only do the peninsula. And then you get guys like in the East Bay where I'm at. So like I'm centered in like Walnut Creek and then up into Solano County, there's guys here that kind of go wider and kind of go everywhere. And it just kind of depends um, on the guy. So it's like, depending on where the deal is, is who I send it to. But it's usually like I send it to the first eight to 12, 12 to 15, 15 to 18, 20, roughly, depending on the location of the property. And then I get kind of a feel for the deal. Hey, do you want to come see it scheduled? And I usually get one or two or three of those guys scheduled to come see it. And then from there, what I'll do is based on, I got six of those guys that want to come see it, then I might not even blast it out. Right. I might just go with it. Cause I like, I like these six guys. I do business with them. They're good to go. I feel pretty confident these six guys and I know the deal, right? I know the deal. I know the property. I know it's a pretty good deal. I'm not worried about it. I know it's going to sell well. That's how I do business. A lot of times, other times the deal might be a little bit thinner or maybe the margin's pretty good, but it's just a lot of work. And it's like, God, man, this is, some guys might not want this or based on the location. Cause it's like the location's a little weird, you know, things like that. Also price points, maybe it's a little bit more expensive. It's kind of a, not a high end, but it, it's in that upper range of flip property. It's up above the median value. So there's less guys that can do those deals or less guys that have the ability. So, but then use, again, I send it to the immediate kind of the VIP list, if you will. And then after that, I send it out to like the secondary, which is kind of everybody else list. And then when do you stop? Is it till someone says they want it or is it someone actually puts down money for the EMD? We do the walkthroughs and then pretty much that afternoon, I got somebody that wants it. And then sometimes it's guys, depending on the time of day and things like in the location or because the house does have a lot of work, guys might say, hey, I need until tomorrow morning. That's okay. But usually I'm pushing for an answer. Like I even have one of my best friends today. I sent him a deal yesterday at four o'clock and I said, let's do this deal together. Let's do this deal together. You, He has a vacation home nearby it. It's a little bit out of the way. It's a little bit further than I normally go. But I was like, you have a vacation home. You go there all the time. Your family lives up there. You know the area. I don't really know the area, but let's let's do the, the deal together. And I sent it to him yesterday. He didn't get back to me. And then he got back to me early this morning. And I was like, but I need to know by noon. Because it's like, if you're not in, I need to know. If you're out, it's okay. It's cool. We'll get the next one. But I need to know. So like for me, I really like, 
I have an expectation and it's a known expectation with all of my buyers. It's like, if you want it, you got to move fast because otherwise I'm going to sell it. But then the EMD does have to go hard. There's most of the guys I deal with. I'm not worried about the EMD. Honestly, I'm not worried about the EMD. If somebody gives me their word, I deal with pretty high level integrity people. And if they're not, I mean, I can, what I, I've been on so many calls. I can hear, I can hear the little cracks and the hesitation in somebody's voice when they're like, uh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Let me go ahead and send me the assignment agreement and I'll, I'll get back. You know, like I can hear there's little tells. It's like he wants it, but he's still thinking about it. You follow me? Like, and it's just, I've been doing this a long time. So I can tell when something's weak, when somebody tells me there are other times too, we're fast and we're texting. It's just all text. And I have somebody on my team helping me with it. And I'm not maybe going voice to voice with them. I'll pick up the phone and call and be like, Hey, what's going on, man? Tell me what, or, you know, what's tell me about, what are you thinking about? So I'm going to hunt through and figure out, but I just, most of the people that I deal with are return and repeat people that do business with. And I feel really, really comfortable. Somebody gives me their word on something. I had a guy recently and he's a guy I really love and respect, a guy I really look up to and admire, a guy I have a high, you know, high integrity guy. He told me he was going to take the deal. And then it was Friday night. I told everybody, no, I locked the deal in for him. I mean, it was completely locked in. And then he called me that night, eight o'clock at night and said, oh, you know, I just, I can't make it work at these numbers. And I didn't factor this in and that and this. And I'm like, well, what can you do? And the fee is about that big now, but I'm not mad with him. You know what I mean? It's just, it is what it is. It's part of business. It's, it's life, right? That happens. He and I are cool. I still like him. I still love the dude, but it's like, I know that, okay, if we get into a deal, I got to make sure, I got to make sure that with him, okay, are you, you know, are you a hundred percent sure? Now I know I got to like triple confirm with him or double confirm, not triple, but I got to double confirm with him. So, you know, you get to know people. So that's the whole thing. It's a people business though. So that's the big thing, but no daisy chains. No, I, I can't stand the daisy chain guy. Or if it is a daisy chain, just tell me that up front. Let's have a conversation about it. Or I had a guy that oh, six, nine months ago, he was great. He still is a great guy. I think he's a very, very good guy. A great guy. He's a broker also. He called me one time on a deal. He missed it. It was a sign. It was a for sale sign. It was a listing. But it was kind of like it was a whole it was a flip deal, though. I ended up double ending the deal in that. And I, I list stuff, too. Sometimes when I go out and I tell people, hey, we can get an offer here. We can do I can give you a cash offer here. If you're really dead set on putting it on the market, I'll put it on the market for you. And I'll still shop it out to my guys. I'm cool with it either way. Right. Keep the revenue machine working. Well, this guy had called me. Hey, yeah, I got investors, blah, 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 blah. So I added him to my list. He's a broker. First deal I send him. He brings me a really good buyer. We make a nice fee. I share the fee with them 50-50. Good deal. Second deal, good. 50-50. Third deal, good. 50-50. Everything's going well. And then all of a sudden, he like his buyers were low. They were tire kicking. He missed like probably four or five deals with me. And I have a deal. I send it to a buyer. We're negotiating. It's a nice fee. They're like, yeah, we'll do the deal. Somebody I've never dealt with before. Follow up with them the next morning. And I'm like, hey, what happened? I never got the assignment agreement. And they go, well, we got a text message from somebody on your team. And they were saying that we could get it for, I think it was like 30,000 less or something. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Nobody on my team, like I'm the only one. Or, you know, I asked my other team, no, no, we didn't send out. No, sure. Make sure. Okay. I look at the text threads, nothing. And I said, really? Well, who was it? And they go, well, I'm not sure. Let me find out. 
all of a sudden that guy starts texting me, this other broker texting me, Hey, do you think it would, could, could we get the deal done at this? And it was the same number that they were talking about. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And it's like, so basically here's what happened. He sent it out to them and they probably said, yeah, well, how much or what? Or I don't know something. And he goes, well, maybe we can get it at. And then I noticed that because all of a sudden also too, the three or four or five deals that he didn't get the previous deals, there was that kind of thing. Hey, do you think you could do 30,000 less than what we were asking? Hey, do you think you could do? So what he was doing is he's shopping it like, let's just say the price was 500,000 and he's shopping it to his list. Like, Hey, why don't we try 450? Why don't we try 475? You see how that like, so he was kind of like, just, he started slinging mud basically, you know, just slinging it. And let's see, let's see if we can kind of take a shot at it. The problem is, is in that exact thing, that's the problem with Daisy chain is because then when guys go out there and they start acting like they're direct to the seller or like they have control of the deal and the end buyers, a lot of times they don't know, they get a text message, they see an address, they see fixer upper, blah, 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 address. They think it's probably like, oh, okay, this is direct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's do the deal. They don't know the difference. So I don't like daisy chains and you just got to really be sure. Also too, when I talk to somebody new, I always vet them myself. So I talk to them, I call them, I want to talk to them before they get added to the list in almost all cases. So, or before they get to go out and see the property. And how are you talking with the sellers so that you can bring in six or seven people who are interested in the property to come walk around? I'm telling the seller a lot of times, I'm saying like, hey, look, here's how I work. Now, you got to remember, I'm a broker. I'm licensed. So I say, hey, look, I'm a broker. I also have a network of contractor, investor, buyers. And so what I do is this is, we get the deal, we negotiate, we got it all figured out. I go, look, I'm going to also, part of what we do is we resell the deal and we flip, fix and flip. We do obviously do that, but also I have a lot of guys too. So if I have the opportunity to do that, I just want to let you know that, that we're it could be where we have another buyer who either partners with us or that we sell to. And either way, we're going to close on this date. You're going to get your price. There's not going to be, you're not going to pay any fees, closing costs, whatever. So that's how we're basically having that conversation in a way that we're having that conversation in a way that, that hey, we got options. We we might do it. But again, that it's, it's clear to them that I'm, hey, I'm a broker. It's a network. It's a group. Here's how I do it. This is the way I run the deal. Here's how we'll know. After we do the walkthrough, I'll let you know that it's good to go. And then we can lock in our move date, close date. So Nice. And how do you evaluate a deal? How do you determine if something is good to move on or not? Well, I'll give it two ways. So I have MLS access. So, But honestly, I don't even look a lot at MLS. I have somebody on my team that will run the MLS, look at it, run comps, do all of that, tax records. We'll check all of that. But also for me, I do like just on Redfin. So we'll like pull it up on Redfin and um, and look at it from there. So it's like Redfin, you can look at the solds and the actives. We look at the Zillow, we look at the Redfin estimate, and then we look at the Redfin. Like you can look at the comps, sold comps, pending comps, active comps. Very cool. And are there any last final tips that you'd like to give to our listeners before we end the show today? No, I just, it's good to be with you guys. If I can be helpful, my email is ty at tylg.com. And no, dude, it was nice being on. I know I was spinning a lot of sharing a lot and all that, but I think that's what you wanted. Anyway, no, I hope it's helpful for guys. If I can be helpful, send me an email and ty at tylg.com. And no, I appreciate the opportunity. All right, Ty, thank you so much for your time. And I'll let you get back to your cold calling. All right. All right, take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Always be learning. 
Ty has been in the industry for a long time, but is always listening to podcasts and YouTube videos to find the two or three nuggets of new information that can transform his life and his business. The real estate investing business is a numbers game. After 100 calls, you might get 10 contacts, and those 10 contacts could potentially become deals in the future. Get a great buyer's list by going through the property tax records of the homes that are closed near the one that you have on a contract. And if it's an all-cash purchase by an LLC, there's a good chance that they're a legit buyer. Contact them and put them on your buyer's list. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. And if you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.